able to, if you could please stand. Uh, We're going to be reading Acts chapter 5, verse 42. Day after day, in the temple courts, from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. In those days, when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathering all, gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on the tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men among you who are known to be full of spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. Also Philip, Pecorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Well done. You did those names really well. Let's, let's pray while you're standing. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth that's found in your word. And we uh, surrender ourselves to you. We come with open minds, open hearts, asking that you would speak to us this evening. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Well, it's great to see you. Well done. As Jonathan says, well done for being here on a, on a long weekend. Um, I'm really looking forward to this sermon. We're going to be talking about leadership, what it means to be a leader in the kingdom of God. And so I think that that's going to be valuable. I just want to uh, set the stage for what we're going to be talking about today. There's some summary statements in the preceding chapters that kind of set up what's going on in this chapter. It says in chapter 5, verse 14, that more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. So this is a rapidly expanding church. Exciting things are going on. In chapter 4, verse 32, it says, All the believers were one in heart and mind. And then in verse 34, it says, There was no needy persons among them. So everything is going really well. The church is growing. There's unity inside of the church. Uh, uh, People are being practically cared for. It's a great time to be a Christian in this early church. And why is all of this true? Jesus rose from the dead. If you remember, last week we looked at a man named Gamaliel, and he was saying, he's part of the the Jewish leadership, and he says, look, um, when the leaders of movements die, so does the movement. Uh, And if this one is just worshiping a dead person, then it's going to die too. And if there's something more significant going on, then don't, you know, Uh, run at odds with God, because God's doing something. The whole reason for the existence of the church, the reason why you and I are here today, is that Jesus Christ actually rose from the dead. Can you imagine what would happen in this city if we heard, and it got on the news, if we heard that, that somebody actually rose from the dead and it was verified by over 500 witnesses? That would be a remarkable thing. Nobody would be ignorant of that fact. Well, this is exactly what we see at this time, that Jesus rose from the dead. And uh, uh, how do you explain that, aside from the power of God? Now, this then is the dramatic 
Uh, it's what all of human history was looking forward to up until this point of time. It's what's going to define all of human history afterwards. So Satan, the enemy of God, takes notice, and he has a counterattack. The first thing that he does is externally, he brings religious and political forces against the church to try to persecute the church. The opposite effect happens with what Satan would have wanted. The church actually flourishes more under persecution. Absolutely incredible. But he doesn't end there. He also begins to do something internally in the church. We saw what he did with Ananias and Sapphira, that he uh, tried to raise up some people inside of the church who would misuse power. And if power gets misused in the church, the church disintegrates because there's no trust. Well, God dealt with that in a very violent way, if you remember. And then here we see the second difficulty that has come into the church. And it's quite simply discrimination. Ethnic discrimination. There's a group, they're still Jews, but they're a group of Jews that are foreigners coming to Jerusalem. They don't speak the same language. They speak Greek instead of Hebrew or Aramaic. Uh, they can't communicate very well. They come from a foreign land. And so they've been discriminated against in the daily distribution of food and help. They're being overlooked. So what is the apostles' response to this discrimination that's happening in the church? Uh, the good news is they didn't ignore it. They didn't sweep it under the carpet and say that that doesn't exist and it's not really happening and you should just get over it. They responded in a great way, that they proactively appointed godly leaders to deal with this problem. Now, uh, let me just frame those of you who, who don't think much about being a leader you can maybe think, well, maybe this sermon isn't going to have much to do with me. Let me just frame it another way that might be helpful. What we talk about a lot in our church is we say that every person in the world has two core needs, to be secure and to be significant. To be secure is we want to be loved and accepted. To be significant is we want to do something that matters. This sermon is about being significant. It's about doing something that matters. So if you want a life that means something, then this is the sermon for you. So what we're going to look at is four elements of how to be significant. We're going to look at four elements of how to be a godly leader, and I hope that you find it encouraging. So the first thing that we notice in this passage is that the leaders that are appointed are Greek. Now, the church was formed by not Greek-speaking people. They were formed by the Jews who lived in Galilee and and, uh, and in Judah. So this is, a, uh, this is people of a foreign language. You can imagine how that's difficult for them, uh, being in this church. And what God does through the apostles is he appoints people who are Greek-speaking, who, in a sense, are the people who are being discriminated against. Now, uh, what does this mean? The first sign and characteristic of a godly leader is that they accept responsibility and they don't blame. They accept responsibility. Now, this is a, uh, I can, uh, this is an, an innocent example, uh, just to be, uh, to be uh, sensitive. But I remember when 
we were uh, wanting to start a church. We didn't want to be an independent church. We wanted to be a church that was under leadership. And so we looked at all kinds of different denominations and movements, and we ended up joining what's now called Every Nation. Back then it was called Morningstar. And so uh, I go to my, my first conference, my first Morningstar conference, and uh, I walk into the room, and everybody is happy and knows one another. Like, it's, like pe- other people walk in the room, and other faces like, oh, George or Sam or what? Oh, it's just so good to see you. And Debbie and I are standing there going, nobody finds it good to see us. And, uh, and we're just kind of standing, feeling really awkward. Uh, we're Canadian. Everybody else seemed to be American. Or, and uh, we're the foreigner. We do speak the same language, mostly. Uh, but we're from a very different culture. And, um, and we just feel, I just feel awkward. I feel like an outsider. And uh, here's the first thing that goes through my mind. You all know each other, so you should, and you're the insiders. Clearly, I'm the outsider. You should think about me. That's the first thing I think. Like, and it kind of makes sense. You guys are in, I'm out. It's harder for me as the outsider, so you should think about me. Nobody did. Nobody was really thinking about me. I mean, maybe deep in their heart, but nothing, uh, nothing very visible. There was nothing really going on. So in that moment, small moment, all right? Not traumatic. But in that moment, I'm the foreigner and the outsider. And I'm the Greek in the story. And I want to blame the Jews, the insiders. Leaders don't do that. Leaders take their, they are not victimized by their circumstance, they go first. Leaders never say, if you do, then I will. So, uh, so I walk, I, I'm in that room, nobody's paying attention to me, I'm a leader. So I go around, I introduce myself to everybody who will notice me, <laughs> not walk away. I, I just go around, I go, hey, I'm from Canada. You can, you know, you can shake the hand of a Canadian, it'll be amazing. And I, whatever, you know, and I'm just being friendly. And I am not a victim of that circumstance. I'm a leader. And leaders take responsibility and don't wait for somebody else to make the first move. Now, everyone that I know including myself, I think we're all insecure. And we're waiting for other people to make the first move in whatever situation we find ourselves in. Don't we do this? Because I'm, you know, and we, and we think of all the ways we're unique and don't fit in and aren't qualified, and we, that just goes through our mind. Can't speak the language very well. Whatever the reason is, And leaders don't be a victim of their uniqueness or being an outsider. They go, I'm sure everybody else feels the same as me, so here we go. I think that's a very big deal. I tell the story often of my mother who became a um, a, a widow in her, it it would have been, I'm really bad with numbers, but late 40s, early 50s. 
Yeah, I'm our age, right? Thank you. And so a young, a young widow. Now, if you're 40 or 50 and you're single, sometimes that's difficult because you don't fit in with all the marrieds and all the young people seem to be younger and it's an awkward moment. And so I remember my mother telling me, ah, I don't want to go to church. When I go to church, I feel more lonely than if I don't go to church because I just get overlooked. And so, you know, she's telling me about this and she's telling me how difficult it is and she's already grieving as a widow and people are, notice her for the first few weeks and then it kind of fades. And then God bless her, I remember the decision that she made. She says, if I feel alone in church, I can imagine so many others feeling alone in church too. So I'm going to take responsibility. I'm not going to be a victim of this moment. I'm going to take responsibility. So she would arrive half an hour early to every church service and welcome everybody who came in the door. Isn't that powerful? That's a leader. A leader always has good reasons to discredit themselves, but doesn't listen to it. And instead takes responsibility for a moment. That's number one. Number two is it says in this passage that they were spirit filled, that they were spirit-filled. Now, if you've ever read this passage before, it looks a little judgmental, and here's how it sounds. So the Jews, uh, among them, complained, the Hellenistic Jews, that's the Greek-speaking Jews, complained uh, that their widows were being overlooked in the distribution of food, so the 12 gathered together and said, it would not be right, and the, the Greek for that is, would be pleasing in God's eyes, it would not be pleasing in God's eyes for us, for us to neglect the ministry of the word in order to wait on tables. So that sounds a little judgmental, right? It's like, uh, we're kind of above, like, serving people, and so we want to preach the word and pray and do pious things, and then other people should be waiting on tables and serving people practically. It can look like that at first read. But what we notice in this passage is the exact opposite. Who did they look for to, to lead in this daily distribution of food? Something that could look very practical and, un, and mundane and perhaps even unspiritual. They chose people who were spirit-filled. We're going to hear about one of them, Stephen, in the coming chapters. Remarkable man of God. But here's what a leader is able to do. See all ministry as being valuable and spiritual. A leader isn't saying, oh, that's beneath me. I don't, I don't actually wait on tables. I preach and I pray. No, a leader is able to see everything as a possibility for the advancement of God's kingdom. They're spirit-filled. And what this means, quite simply, is they approach a moment in faith. What's God going to do in this moment? It's going to be an amazing moment. Filled with the Spirit. Now, uh, here's how I think that we might uh, read this when we think about being Spirit-filled. Uh, a few weeks ago, we had people being filled with the Spirit, and we encouraged people to speak in tongues and to prophesy. And so we can think that Spirit-filled always means that you're operating in a spiritual gift. What's interesting about this passage is there's no mention of spiritual gifts, and there's no mention of even a natural ability. It's just a need. 
and I see a need, the Spirit of God is in me, I can meet that need. That's how a leader thinks. It's not above me or below me. I'm not even sure that I'm qualified for the job. But I see a need, and the Spirit of God is in me, and by faith, I know that I can somehow contribute to that need. Now, I think of the selectivity that we often have when we sign up for uh, some kind of service in the church or in the community. We go, well, how does it fit my, my strengths? And how does it fit my talents? And will I feel fulfilled in that? Maybe most of all, will I be able to succeed at it? Because I don't want to start something and then fail. It'll be really embarrassing. People won't be helped. I'll look dumb. I don't want to do any of that. Being filled with the Spirit takes our eyes off of us and our abilities and puts them on what Jesus might do in a moment. That's how a leader thinks. I love in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, it says this in verses 1 to 3. I've shrunk it up a little bit just for the sake of brevity. It says, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom. This is the Apostle Paul who wrote a good chunk of the Bible. I didn't come with eloquence or human wisdom. I'm not that great. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling. Isn't that encouraging? You have the Apostle Paul who comes into moments afraid and so nervous that he's actually trembling. And he says, this sets me up to be a leader, not to disqualify me for leadership, but actually be a leader because my faith isn't in who I am in my abilities and what I can do. It's in anticipation of what Jesus Christ is going to do through the work of his spirit. This is how a leader thinks. Again, we will always be able to disqualify ourselves from leadership. I think about, uh, uh, you know, I, I tell you this, and I'm not... Unfortunately, it's about leadership, and I, I, I do a bit of that. And so I, th I think about myself in this context. And I can't think of a week that goes by where I don't feel inadequate. Uh, I'll, I'll round down and say dozens of times in a week. I just feel inadequate all the time. If I'm meeting with you, I feel inadequate. What could I, I mean, what can I give you? You have real issues that should be... Oh, that's... A, you laughed. I didn't mean... I meant meaningful issues and issues that matter. And what am I going to be... What am I going to be able to contribute to that? I don't... I just feel inadequate. Standing up here? Why am I standing up here? This is ridiculous. Like, why? Why? And the more I think about myself, the more insecure I become the less I think about you and the less that I'm able to be able to love and serve you. The only thing that saves me is Jesus Christ rose from the dead, meaning that his spirit is present for us to be able to love others in his name. And if we put our security and confidence in our own ability, we'll never take responsibility for anything. But when our confidence is in Jesus, we rise up and we lead. Can you please hear that? Because I think we all feel pretty insecure, don't we? And we think that our imperfection disqualifies us for leadership when, in fact, it actually qualifies us. If you were to come to me 
and you would say, Pastor Greg, I just want you to know that my talent is absolutely remarkable. I know you don't know me very well, but I am super talented. I sing, I dance, I am a theologian, I tell really great jokes. I mean, if you know, if you come and you sell yourself, I will be very polite, I'll nod, and be sure to not invite you into any position of leadership. Why? Why would I do that? Because your confidence will be in your abilities and not humility in, the, in needing the work of Jesus Christ. In the church, we don't do that. We don't do that. We come needing God to do what only God can do. And if we have a, our confidence is in our flesh, it makes us unqualified leaders in the kingdom of God. So, uh, number one is we need to be Greek, whatever that means. We need to somehow take responsibility even though we don't feel like we are the people who should. We need to be spirit-filled, where we don't, uh, we don't put our confidence in ourselves. We put faith in Jesus Christ and the power of his spirit. It's what it means to be a leader. And our imperfection just makes us need him more. And number three is we're wise. We have wisdom. Now, what does that mean? Proverbs 1.7 and uh, various other places in the Bible, say that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. What does that mean? That godly leaders fear the Lord. Here's what I think it means, is that godly leaders are not people pleasers. They're just not people pleasers. You know this, right? You know that whenever you see a salesperson, you know that they're there to make a sale. And so, sorry, those of you who are in sales, I don't mean to be disrespectful to you. It's a hard job. God bless you for doing the job. But, uh, but, but I know if I'm going into a store, you don't like love me. <laughs> You're trying to make a sale, and I get that. And so when you say things, I take it all, as the saying goes, with a grain of salt. I go, could be true. I'm trying to make a sale. I don't fully believe that you're there for me. Uh, trustworthy leaders aren't there for themselves. They're not trying to people please. They don't compare. They, again, one of the primary reasons why we exclude ourselves from ministry is we compare ourselves to other people who we see as being talented, and we go, oh, I'm not like that. I guess I can't, I guess I can't be a leader. But the fear of the Lord says that I'm here to love Jesus, not to get you to like me. Because the moment a leader needs the approval of people, they cannot genuinely love someone. And we know this, that we're suspect. It doesn't mean that you're trying to be mean. It means that you're trying to do what's best. It's like a parent. If a parent needs the approval of their children, they can never be a good parent. Because sometimes you have to do things that aren't easy to say or do. But it makes us safe leaders. So wisdom, then, is not about being smart. A wise person isn't necessarily a smart person. I know some people who are brilliant, and they're just not very wise. They can quote lots of facts, 
but you can tell, have you ever really lived it? Others, people can be very experienced. You can have tons of experiences and actually not be very wise. You could just not have learned from any of your experiences. So being smart or being experienced doesn't qualify you for wisdom. Insight, wisdom, is rooted in one thing, and it's godly character. Is rooted in one thing, and it's godly character. When you look through the qualifications of leadership in the Bible, you'll see far and away, there's only one skill that's, 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 that's mentioned. It's the ability to teach or communicate, because you have to be able to somehow say things that God has put in you. Everything else is about, is about uh, character. I'd like to share a few quotes of character that I find to be helpful. It's what makes us wise. Dwight Moody, who in the previous century was a, uh, an incredible evangelist. In America, here's what he says. Character is what you are in the dark. Isn't that great? Character is what you are when no one's watching. That means that you're not putting on a show for anybody when you're being godly. Because you would be that if nobody was around. And that makes you wise. Because it's not about people pleasing. It's about doing what's right before God and being answerable to him. And he can see in the dark and the light. Helen Keller, who was blind, not able to communicate, she says this, character cannot be developed in ease and quiet. Character cannot be developed in ease and quiet. Here's how you get wise. Let me tell you now. I know this is hard to make the jump, but I think it's true. You get wiser by repeatedly dying to yourself and trying to honor God. That's how you get wise. You get wise when you don't manipulate moments to be about yourself. When moments are about the benefit of others to the glory of God and not trying to attract anything towards yourself. I've told the story, but let me tell it again. Uh, I was uh, going to Regent College at the time, uh, getting my master's degree in theology. And if you, uh, if you know most people, to the exception of Jonathan, but uh, to most people who are getting their master's in theology, it's when they know the most. It goes down after that when you actually have to try to apply it. But uh, back then, I was super arrogant. I'd taken a few courses in Greek and uh, some theology courses, so I thought I was really smart. So I met with my pastor, and uh, in my infinite humility, I said, you know, if you ever want me to help out in the church, I'm, I'm glad to help out. And, uh, and his response was, that'd be great. And he says, actually, in a few months, we have a conference coming up. And I'm thinking, wow, that's fantastic. I mean, I probably won't be the plenary speaker, but, uh, you know, perhaps a workshop, you know. I thought, that, yeah, that would be a good place to start. I can, I can do that. I can start there at least. And so I'm waiting for the invite. And he says, well, he says, uh, we could really use your help. I go, great, I'll help any way that you'd like. He says, during the breaks, the uh, washrooms are really, really dirty. And so we could really use your help in cleaning out the washrooms. And I remember thinking, you know, that's not exactly uh, the kind of help that I was imagining doing. But I guess I could do that. I was actually a janitor at the time. And uh, <clears throat> I remember thinking, I could fail in leadership right now by being insulted, by being asked to be a servant. 
And I remember in that moment making a decision that if my identity was ever in a position, I was an unsafe leader. And if I can't clean bathrooms for the glory of God, heaven help us all if I ever hold a mic. And so I remember cleaning those bathrooms, I tell you, it was impressive. I'm just, I'm just being honest. Those were the cleanest bathrooms you could ever imagine. Because I knew that it doesn't matter what I do, it matters who I do it for. And if I do it for the glory of God and for the love of God, that can make me a safe person when other things come along. Final quote by William Gladstone. He was a prime minister in Britain. Here's what he said. Character is stable and enduring, while the reputation of a man is like his shadow. It sometimes follows and sometimes precedes him. It is sometimes longer. It is sometimes shorter than himself. If you ever try to pursue reputation, you'll always be trying to look bigger than you really are. And character isn't thinking about that. Character is doing what's right before God. And as we decide to do that, we become wise. Because wise people aren't thinking about themselves. They're thinking about what Jesus would do in this moment, what brings him glory, and what would be best for others. It's how you get wise, through having godly character. An interesting thing happened this weekend. Um, one of the most uh, difficult moments in my life, I have a, f- I have, I, I have a handful of moments. This, was, this is, you know number two or three on my list, is I, um, I resigned from my old church. It was 22, 23 years ago, something like that. It's the hardest thing up until that point that I'd ever gone through. Uh, the name of the church was Burnaby Christian Fellowship. I love that church. And I wanted to be there for the rest of my life. And I knew that I was supposed to resign because... Uh, I wasn't a blessing to the people there. It was a difficult moment. And so um, I just can't tell you how hard it was for me. I still get emotional thinking about it because I just love that church so much. I still love that church. It was a great church. And so uh, I'm standing on stage uh, giving my resignation. The other pastor who's, uh, who is going to be remaining, she uh, spoke as well. And it's a day that I just don't really want to remember. It was humiliating. I felt like a failure. I felt disloyal. I just, all these things are going through my mind. And I'm just trying to honor Jesus in a very difficult moment. So my wife right now, so flash forward to yesterday. My wife is, uh, uh, we have a, a uh, we're selling puppies. If you want a puppy... I'll give you my phone number afterwards. It's a shameless plug. No. Um, but she's selling puppies. That's so why she's not here. She, so we're selling puppies. And uh, a pastor comes uh, to buy a puppy. And he goes, I know you. I know you from BCF. I'm going, oh, I don't remember you. But I want to remember you. And then he starts talking. I started to kind of, he says, the first day that I came to BCF, you were giving your resignation. I thought, wow, I'm sorry that that was your first introduction to church was when I was giving my resignation. Listen to what he says. 
He says that. I was so moved by how you spoke and by how Pastor Ruth Blight spoke afterwards. I was so moved by that. I became a Christian that Sunday. Now, I can't tell you what that means to me because that, that was a hard moment. But if we try to do things for the love of God and to bring glory to his name, he takes really difficult moments and uses them for his glory and to love his church, to draw people to himself. Wisdom and character are irreplaceable qualities of a leader. And if you aspire, some of you might aspire to leadership, then become godly in the dark. You know, I, I'll go on to my last point, but I, I look at, uh, I read, I've read hundreds of leadership books. And here's what you can do. You can just fake it. I know what to do when you tell me uh, a complaint. I've read what to do. I know what to do. I know how to, I know how to organize leadership, kind of. And I, I study these things. And what you can do as a leader is you can just collect a whole bunch of behaviors. There's tons of books written on it. My, my favorite title is The 21 Irrefutable Laws of Leadership, as if you could ever remember 21 irrefutable laws. Like, why not 22? But anyways. Uh, but you can just remember all of these principles and then apply them. But here's what happens. Is real life never quite fits into all of those neat little boxes and principles. Because people are real and they have real problems and it's disrespectful to talk in a way that makes it, a, that a technique can answer. I've been in vocational ministry over 30 years, and all you can rely on is the presence of God in you and a desire to be genuine in your love toward one, someone in a moment. And all the techniques vanish in my head as I listen to somebody have a difficult issue that they're going through. And if you don't have, if you haven't walked with Jesus in the dark, you have nothing to say in the light. Final one. So we're Greek, we're spirit-filled, we're wise. And by the way, remember, nobody feels great at these, just before you start getting smaller and smaller in your seat. The final one is their contributors. Godly leaders serve God's cause. They aren't motivated by personal ambition. Here's what's so interesting. You have these Greek leaders, who uh, the apostles, who look like they have all the power and authority. They're the ones who are going to lay hands on them, commission them. They have all the power. And the Greek leaders uh, don't have the primary role in the church. And they're delighted to take on a role that isn't about them, that's about actually blessing something bigger than themselves known as the kingdom of God. Again, I'll just give you a heads up. If you want to be excluded from Christian leadership, have personal ambition. If you want to be excluded. Because there's no room for personal ambition in the church. There's room for self-sacrifice 
and loving others in Jesus' name. And so you see these young leaders waiting on tables with great faith and wisdom, and they're taking on full responsibility, not blaming anybody else. And they're doing that all for something that, uh, that they're just, in modern language, they're just a cog in the machine. Maybe not even ever noticed. But they know that God notices. And it's him that they're serving. And they're not building their own kingdom. They're building the kingdom of God. And so it becomes a privilege. I'll tell you, one of the things that if I can just brag about our, our pastors um, in this church, I'll tell you one of the primary criteria of them becoming pastors in this church and what I see in them time and time again is the joy that they have in fulfilling someone else's vision. It's remarkable. Absolutely remarkable. There's so much joy in seeing something that we didn't create, but we got to participate in, seeing that become fruitful. One more story, and then I'll conclude. <clears throat> when, uh, when I first joined Every Nation, um, they, uh, in a few years, they asked me whether I would write material for the Bible school that was being, they were writing material for all the churches around the world. And so I got to be on the writing um, uh, team. It was really, really great. Uh, super fun. And my job was to take uh, other people's material and just make it better. So nobody knows what I wrote or didn't write. I think I, I think I wrote one, but everybody else's. I'm just so I steep myself in uh, in learning what is in so and so's mind, <clears throat> and then I get to make them. I get to make the truth that God has put in their heart more accessible for people, make a little bit more sense. And I can't tell you the joy that I felt in not being known that I did that. I just, I felt like I had a secret. You know, and, and people would take a course, they go, that's an amazing course. And I go, yeah, he is amazing, isn't he? They go, yeah. How did he come up with And I just loved not showing my hand. I just can't tell you. It amused me to no end. There is so much freedom in giving glory to God and not yourself. There's just so much freedom in it. I'm sorry that these stories are about me. I prefer to tell negative stories. In conclusion, can I please ask you this evening, I don't know if I can implore you or what, I want us all to be leaders in the kingdom of God. I don't know you all, but those of you who I know, man, you're great folk. I'm just so grateful for you. I'm humbled to be in the same church as you. And I want our city to taste of those kinds of leaders. Would you be so humble as to sign up for that? You will not sign up for that if you're proud. 
because it'll never make you look good. You'll always feel inadequate, and you already feel inadequate, so why add to it? But humility and the love of God would say, something jumps in my spirit that I want to be a part of that. And I'm praying that this will be a church that multiplies leaders who look like that. And if you're disqualifying yourself, maybe you're at the front of the line. Maybe you're actually safe because you know that you couldn't pull that off. What's the result of these, it, 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 the, the, at the very end of the passage, it talks about these, uh, these Greek leaders who get prayed for to wait on tables. And listen to what it says immediately after that. So, otherwise known as because. Because of that, the word of God spread. The word of God spread when people look like that. Man, can we be that? Please, can we do this together? Can we be that? God wants your diversity the diversity that you feel like lesser than, that diversity, where I'm the outsider, the Canadian going to an American conference. God wants our diversity. He wants our faith and wisdom to contribute to his vision. Your kingdom come, your will be done. So I would like us to, uh, uh, I would like for those of you who, and don't feel bad if uh, there's no pressure it's just an invitation. So I'm totally fine if you're sitting there. I'm totally fine if you're going to come forward. But I would like an opportunity to pray. And just as the apostles laid their hands on these folk, I would love, I've asked Glenn, one of our elders, to come forward. We would like an opportunity to pray with you. And uh, to experience doing ministry by the Spirit of God, not according to our own talents and strengths, in the fear of the Lord, because we walk with him and we want to contribute to something bigger than ourselves. If you would like to be prayed for, it would be our privilege to be able to pray for you. And so if we can have the, uh, is two people called a worship team still? I think so. <clears throat> can we please stand together? I'd like to pray for all of you, if you don't mind. <clears throat> if you would like you could receive this prayer if you would like you could receive this prayer Father in your word you said the harvest is plentiful but the workers are few ask the Lord of the harvest so I'm asking you, Lord, to stir our hearts to say yes to the call to wait on tables, to serve the poor, to proclaim the good news, to be a servant in the kingdom of God. Father, I ask for my friends that you would choose us it would be our deepest privilege, our deepest privilege to be a doorkeeper 
in your kingdom. So Father, would you stir in our hearts? We're, we're all so busy. We've got dreams and visions of our own. And I'm asking today that your dreams and your vision would capture our hearts and that our dreams and visions would fall underneath yours. So Father, rest upon your people. Commission us for service.